Uh, this week we're going to do chapter 7 is about him establishing something that he called the Scriptural Knowledge Institution. So just some background on that. Mueller set out to establish a new missionary society due to at least four issues with the existing ones that he knew of. First of all, their goal to see the whole earth converted, their inclusion of unbelievers as members, their asking of unbelievers for money, and their willingness to take on debts. The question that I have for you is, are these legitimate objections and sufficient reason to form a new organization based on other principles? Let's just go with these one at a time. Their goal to see the whole earth converted. I think on your book it's verse uh, or page 55. Um, in, in these uh, societies or, or institutions, they said the goal they're working toward is the whole world will eventually be converted. So first of all, is it a goal? Is it a good goal that the whole earth would be converted? Yes. Is it a is it a goal that the scriptures give us expectation will it be accomplished? So it comes down to definition, right? All right. So he quotes a verse that other societies used, like Habakkuk 2.14. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Or Isaiah 11.9, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. His response was, these passages have no reference to the present dispensation, but the one which will begin when the Lord returns. In the present time, things will not become spiritually better, but worse. Only people gathered out from among the Gentiles for the Lord will be converted. This is clear from many passages in God's word. Comes a little bit later. We should pray for it, but it's unscriptural to expect the conversion of the whole world. Um, any objections to his reason for why he disagreed with their premise? The, the phrase, only people gathered out from among the Gentiles for the Lord will be converted, gives me a little bit of pause, and I think partially because he wanted to go minister to the Jews in a particular place, which makes me think that's not necessarily an absolute statement that he's making. I think maybe what he's getting at is something more along the lines of um, God is working primarily through the church than the nation of Israel. And if that's what he's saying, I think we would agree with that, right? As Romans 9-11 through 11 talk about a temporary hardening, setting aside, God using the, the jealousy of the Jews toward the Gentiles being added in to this thing that God is building as a means that will eventually lead to their salvation, which, as he points out, is primarily an end times event that's being looked forward to. So maybe that reason is not... Um, well, I, let, let me ask you this. How would an expectation that everyone will be saved versus an expectation that we should work toward that goal but not everyone will be saved affect our approach to ministry? Okay, so we might be tempted to 
have the wrong method or the wrong standard for evaluating, right? So the wrong method would be changing the message or one of those, or changing the message would be really bad, but even trying to repackage the message in a way that sort of manipulates people into accepting it would be wrong. But then evaluation would be, do we say, as long as someone has prayed a prayer, they're saved. If their lives are changed, they're saved. If they're maturing in the faith and teaching others, they're saved. Like, like what's our standard for evaluating? And so potentially, depending on whether we expect everyone to be saved or only some to be saved, that may affect how we do ministry. We could swing too far the other way, right? We could say, well, nobody's going to be saved. And take kind of a not... We would never say that out loud. But we might sort of sort of settle into that kind of a discouraged attitude, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I've not seen anybody saved recently. So yeah, I mean, God could save people, but I don't know about here and now, you know. Um, okay, so that's the first objection that he had. Second objection that he had was including unbelievers as members in their Christian work. Any thoughts on that one? Jim. We'll actually get into that one in number three, but just the fact that they included people who were not Christians as part of their missionary societies. How do we feel about that? What do we think about that? What would be a good or a bad thing about it? Sandra? Okay, in what way or why? Okay. Okay. Okay, so different perspective. All right. Good. Louise, did you have your hand up? No? All right. Must be seeing things. Do you have something to share? What's that? Okay, all right, that's fine. <laughs> um, all right, so one problem would be if you've got different goals or objectives. You're going to sort of be pulling different directions. Um, I think a more fundamental question, and the one that he gets at, is are we supposed to be working alongside unbelievers even to accomplish good goals? Jonathan? Well, most people think it's talking about marriage, but I think it's actually talking about what you're talking about. And then marriage is a really clear application given the context. So, but yeah. So don't be yoked with unbelievers. Paul's saying you can't be partnered with demon worshipers in trying to advance the gospel. It just doesn't work, right? So this is an interesting point because I think, I think politically we've gotten a little fuzzy on this issue because we've said, well, Here's someone who prays to marry every day, but they believe that abortion is wrong, so we can partner with them and get rid of this evil. Now, is it a good goal to get rid of the evil of abortion? Yes. Can we compromise the gospel even to accomplish a goal like that? No. What does that look like? That's where it gets more complicated, right? Um, this is, I think, tied into uh, President Trump, too, right? Or Biden, for that matter from the perspective of um, there were people who said here's someone who's at least for most of his life whose character is very questionable and all those sorts of things can we in good conscience support him 
And then um, there are people who said, well, maybe there were some things about the current president where at least at certain points he seemed to be maybe more level-headed or whatever. We could argue that point. But he's for all of these things that the Bible says are wrong. Should we support him? My point is we should support neither of them to a degree that we compromise the gospel, which is to say, if we say President Trump is our savior, Jesus is our savior. If we say we're going to act like none of the things he's ever done mattered, even though every other candidate up to that point, we were really concerned about their personal lives, and we just sort of brush them over because we see in a pragmatic or utilitarian way, here's somebody who can help us accomplish a goal we think is good. I think we compromise the gospel. And the reason that I say that is because there was so much emphasis put on the former president and various other political candidates in the last 50 years that there were a number of times where people very much walked away with the impression that we were more concerned about getting our goals accomplished, whichever party we were part of, than we were about Jesus' goals being accomplished. And I think that's a fair criticism. Because if we are so invested in accomplishing something politically or societally or whatever else that we fail to say what really matters and what is most important, then I think we've compromised the gospel to a greater or lesser extent. And so Mueller's situation is, here's people who say, we want to serve Jesus, but we're going to have unbelievers be a part of the group. He said, I don't see how you can reconcile that with Scripture, right? So... What about his third one? His third one is asking unbelievers for money. Should the church ask unbelievers for money? Like, should we have a... I don't know. Um, I, I, there was a former pastor... Not a former pastor. A pastor of a church out in Howell who said he used to be part of a Methodist church and they would do these huge barbecues and they would do them as fundraisers to raise money for the church. Is that a legitimate way to raise funds for the ministry of a particular local church? Okay. What, why would you say that? I'm not saying you're wrong, but why would you say that? Yeah, so that's a good goal, Jonathan. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking more of a scenario where, let's say, you were trying to raise, like, I don't know. Um, I have a relative who helped his friend who attends a Catholic church set up this kind of a thing where they host, uh, I don't know, I don't know if it was like a square dance or what it was, but they raised like $50,000 through this event they put on every year. That's the sort of thing I'm talking about. Not like, not like, sure, not like covering the cost of the event itself, but raising tens of thousands of dollars for your organization. That's the sort of thing I have in mind. Bob? Yeah. So there's that. 
There's also the reality of if we ask someone for money and they give us that money, there's an expectation and a direction of how that money is to be used. So there's that element. Sandra? Yeah, I, let's even think about, Eric, go ahead. I think it's a fair point. I, here, here's, I guess, if we were going to try to land the plane on it. If we look at Paul's example, Paul was so concerned about not confusing why he was sharing the gospel that he said to these churches, I have a right to ask you for money and support, but I'm not going to because I don't want you to think I'm just doing it for the money in the establishing of various churches in various places. So if that was Paul's attitude, and Paul wasn't necessarily inspired in that attitude, but it comes across in a lot of the inspired writings in his epistles, and I think it's a, a good pattern to look at. If, if that was the goal, or if, um, you know, Mueller's example was, well, even Abraham didn't ask for money for himself when he rescued the pagan kings from the, the pillaging and plundering and all that that was going on. Again, same idea, right, Rob? <coughs> Yeah. Okay. Bob, do you have one on that? I think we're getting there, but ultimately, where's our faith? Okay. Are we asking the world, or are we praying and asking God? Sure. So I think it comes down to that in the end. Yeah, and, and, and even more fundamental questions, like do we need to do the thing that we're doing the huge fundraiser for, right? So if we said, for example, we really feel like we need to have a million-dollar building, brand new building, we're going to go build it next week. There's been people who went so far as to say, and if you don't raise the money, I'm going to set myself on fire and God's going to kill me. Like there were people that have gone that extreme, like TV preachers and whatever, right? That kind of nonsense. If that's the approach that we're coming from, then yeah, there's no faith there. There's just manipulation, right? And if, if it's, I mean, his attitude throughout the book as we read it is basically, if God doesn't provide the money, maybe he doesn't want us to do it, or maybe he doesn't want us to do it yet, right? As opposed to the attitude today is, and this goes into the last point that he had an issue with, we're going to go into massive amounts of debt to accomplish goals that may not be the important goal to accomplish, that may have little or nothing to do with the work God actually wants us to accomplish in the world, right? 
Now, we have a building, should we make use of it? Yes. Should we take care of it? Yes. Should it be the driving force of our ministry? No. And if there ever comes a breaking point where it is a decision between doing ministry work and maintaining the building, I think we have to say, where do our priorities lie, right? But in his case, he's just even saying like good things, like sending out missionaries and printing copies of scripture and all those sorts of things. Should that be supported by unbelievers? His answer was no, so he felt like it couldn't be a part of these societies. Last point, should we take on debt to accomplish ministry goals? Let's, let's, let's start with a more um, uh, more basic question. Is it always wrong to take on debt? Is it sometimes stupid to take on debt? So, give you an example. Um, it has become less clear. But let's say 10 years ago, if you had a choice between a used car and a new car, the choice was pretty clear because the second you drove the new car off the lot, it was losing money. Now, I'm not saying it's sinful, but I'm just saying from an investment perspective, it was unwise, right? Because here's something that's, let's say, worth $30,000, you drive it off the lot, now it's worth 25, in two years it's worth 20, like all that kind of thing, right? We're in a weird spot now where the gap between a used car and a new car might be $500 or $1,000 and it's way less clear, right? But the point would still be don't overextend yourself for things that rapidly devalue, right? Um, vacations. Is it good to go on vacation? Sure. Should you say, I'm going to go into debt so I can spend $5,000 to go on a cruise? That seems like a really bad idea, right? Um, all right, so principle of debt broadly, if you take on debt, you are enslaved to the person you take on debt from until you pay it back. There are exceptions to that. There are sometimes options for loan forgiveness and bankruptcy and all those sorts of things. But as a general principle, that's what we see laid out in scripture and in society. So his question is, should societies take on debt or be careless in managing their money in a way that gives a bad reputation and ignores principles like, oh, no man, anything but to love one another? His argument was we shouldn't, right? Do we, I think we would tend to agree, at least in general, with his, with his principle, right? So for all of these reasons together, maybe one of them by itself wouldn't be a sufficient reason to start a new group, right? Because maybe we could work through one of them. Like, maybe the theological point, although important, you could still collaborate with someone who says, yes, everybody's going to be saved. And the other person says, I don't know if everybody's going to be saved, but let's go try, right? Those two people could work together maybe, right? But people, you know, the last three points, especially the last three points together, unbelievers having voting power, unbelievers paying for everything, and debts being just a normal part of life for the group, he said, I don't think I can be a part of, a, of an organization like this. So he goes and starts a new one. He says this as well. Beyond the object, or I say this, beyond the objection stated above, Mueller said this, we will not measure the success of the institution by the amount of money given or the numbers of Bibles distributed by, by, by the Lord's blessing on the work. Is this a good way to measure success? Yes, although it might be good to define it a little bit more specifically, right? So the Lord's blessing can be sometimes misconstrued. So that's something just to keep in mind, right? So um, again, it's just 
It's not always immediately straightforward what that means or what people mean by it. Bob? I would say the principle in general is what should be sought after. Yeah, yeah. Because we could say, okay, well, if this church never gets back to 100 members, then it's worthless. Right. But no, that doesn't equate, right? Right. If we don't raise enough money, then we're not, we should just shut down. Right. We can't measure God's work by those members. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we should define what we're saying, and we should measure success according to biblical evaluations, not in just number quantity kind of things. Um, but we also shouldn't just say, well, you know, yeah, talking to two people a year is good enough as far as witnessing, so I'm happy with that, and that's kind of going to be my goal. For I, we should set higher goals for, and, and look to see what God will accomplish through them, right? But maybe less about money and quantity kind of things. Um, Next thing, Mueller also noted, while we avoid needless separation, we desire to go on simply according to Scripture without compromising the truth. We will thankfully receive any scriptural instruction which experienced believers after prayer may have to give to us concerning the institution. So how should we think about separation in terms of our institutions, our organizations? How can we defend the truth while maintaining humility? Can we cooperate with other organizations? Potentially, yeah? That's something that from our particular church heritage and theological stream, we haven't always been very good at. Now, does that mean that we should dive into a theological tradition or history where they've had arguments about whether the Bible is true? I'm not saying that's the solution either. I'm just saying we need to recognize some of the some of the particular challenges of where we are based on where people were before us that led to where we are, right? So churches that have more of an independent background or a fundamentalist background or some of these sorts of things sometimes have so emphasized separation that we've lost sight of the fact God is doing a lot of things in a lot of different churches and there's going to be more people in heaven than just people who look exactly like us in terms of the way they do things. I don't think that means we throw out everything that's distinctive about our church either. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we need to recognize when Jesus says people will know you by your love for one another and unity is a mark of God's work among the church, we should take that seriously and think about not letting minor issues become points of division. So then how can we defend the truth while maintaining humility? We have to figure out, first of all, what the truth is that we need to defend. And we need to say... Because I have been wrong before, because I only have limited knowledge, because of all of these factors, there are things that I can learn from a variety of other people, even people with whom I strongly disagree on many points, and God can use that to accomplish his purposes. I realize you've got to be careful with that because there's a lot of error in the world, but Bob? The conclusions of the Good. All right, next question. Is it important for those who teach others to be believers and to be mature in faith themselves? This was on the subject of they said they were going to have uh, like Sunday school teachers who were A, believers, and also some level of maturity. Is that wise? Yeah. Um, I think sometimes there's been cases where churches are so desperate to have people fill positions 
but they haven't stopped to say, are these people qualified to fill those positions, right? And there's a lot of creative solutions that don't involve throwing people who have no idea what they're doing into teaching something important, right? And when I say no idea what they're doing, when I first started teaching the Bible class at the Christian school, I didn't really have a really good concept of um, how to maintain classroom order and how to write tests. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about do you know the Bible, love the Bible, love God? Like those sorts of things need to be in place before you're going to teach a Sunday school class or some of these other things, right? There needs to be a degree to which you don't teach something and someone comes up and says, yeah, you're saying that, but you never lived that way. There needs Because that's a problem too, right? So life, our uh, beliefs and experience need to be at a certain point to be ready to teach other people. And in part, you know, James says, those who teach are going to be called into stricter judgment. So why would we want to wish that on someone, God's greater accountability for teaching his word, if they're not prepared, if we haven't prepared them for it? So I think that's a very good point that they made. A little bit later, he said, I've prayed much this week for money, more than any other week since we've been in Bristol. The Lord has provided through people paying what they owed us. We also sold some of the things that we did not need. So how was God increasing Mueller's dependence and was his response proper? So how was God increasing his dependence? Yeah, greater need, not saying yes right away, that kind of thing, okay. Was his response a proper response? The selling things he didn't need. Because this is something that I think we struggle with, because there's a lot of things that we think that we need that we don't, right? But he came to a point and he said, you know, maybe we don't need that table. Maybe we don't need that dresser. Maybe we don't need that whatever. We're going to sell that, and that can be a means of God answering this prayer. So sometimes I think we set it up like either God will miraculously provide money or I will take a specific action that leads to the goal being accomplished. It can be both, right? Because God's the one who sort of nudged people along to pay the stuff that was owed. And God's the one that gave him, I think, the idea to say, here we can sell this thing that we don't need. Maybe we can get another one down the road. Maybe we still don't need it at that point, right? A little bit later, Mueller... Oh, yeah, go ahead, Sandra. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. Yeah, it's really easy, I think. Well, it's a little bit ironic. We can become very attached to objects for a variety of reasons but not so much for the reasons I like for my generation it's not so much the reason our parents generation was uh, so for example let's say my parents or grandparents might have had some sort of piece of furniture that was well built passed down from another family member that sort of thing they kept it for those reasons whereas my generation I think tends to hold on to stuff as some sort of status thing or to say look how successful I am even if it's just and there's nothing wrong with this, but even if it's just like furniture from Walmart or something that's basically wood, dust, and glue, right? Um, it's easy to say, well, I have lots of stuff. That means I'm doing well. If I get rid of the stuff, people think I'm not doing well, so I'm not going to get rid of it, right? And that's just a silly attitude to have. Mueller said he had sort of this looser perspective on things. I have this for a while. Maybe I have to get rid of it. Maybe I can have this again down the road. Maybe not. It's not... My life is not defined by my possessions, which, interestingly enough, is another Bible verse, right? Even when one has an abundance, it's, its life doesn't consist of his possessions, right? 
we tend to really easily forget that in our society. Moving on to the next part. Mueller prayed about going to the East Indies or Calcutta. Yet God had him to send money instead to support some missionaries who went there and to establish an orphan house. Unlike some of the other moments where he said, I'm going to go to a particular place, this one never happens. Instead, he goes and establishes the orphan house shortly afterward. What should we make of that? What can we potentially learn from that? Jim? Okay, Mary? Yeah. Okay. Eric, did you ever hear that? Sure. Okay, Bob? Similarly, I was going to say just because we have a thought doesn't mean God put it there. Okay. Xander? Yeah, so kind of bringing all these things together, God can give you a desire to pray more about something. God could give you an opportunity to help in a short term with something. God can give you an opportunity to support something financially. God can give you motivation to recruit someone else to go do that thing. Or you can be the one to do it. There's at least those five options of how you can be involved in a particular ministry. And the fact that you have a desire to do it, if it is a good thing that fits according to God's plan, isn't bad. The question mark, I think, is not so much, do I have a desire to see this happen? It's what is my role going to be in accomplishing it, right? And that's what he had to work through. And the fact that he moved on relatively quickly to this idea of the orphan house, in some way he became persuaded, you know, I'm not going to be the one to go, but I can recruit people, I can pray for people, I can potentially send people or uh, support people, right? Um, I think... The bottom line is we have to be okay with God changing our plans and recognizing not every good desire we have will be fulfilled, right? And that can be difficult to wrestle through. His son dies. I fully realize, this is his response, that the dear infant is much better off with the Lord Jesus than with us, and when I weep, I weep for joy. How could he have this response, and was it the right one? Eric? Okay. Okay. What do we have to believe is true in order to have that kind of response? Mm. Potentially. I just mean, like, let's say that it wasn't an infant. Let's say that it was someone who had trusted in Jesus. What do we have to believe in order to be... Devin? Okay. Yeah. Um, let me see if I can find this real quick. I understand the, the subject of, of infants and heaven and all that sort of thing. There's a lot of um, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Second Corinthians four and five. Um, there was something I was reading from. Let me see if I can find it real quick. It's an extended quote from Spurgeon. Let me see here, just a second. Basically, the idea of it is that, there it is, okay. Death smites the goodliest of our friends, the most generous, the most prayerful, the most holy, and the most devoted must die. And why? It is through Jesus' prevailing prayer, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. It is that which bears them on eagles' wings to heaven. Every time a believer mounts from this earth to paradise, it is an answer to Christ's prayer. A good old divine remarks, many times Jesus and his people pull against one another in prayer. You bend your knee in prayer and say, Father, I will that thy saints be with me where I am. Christ says, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. Thus the disciples at cross purposes with his Lord. The soul cannot be in both places, cannot be with Christ and with you too. Now which pleader shall win the day? If you had your choice, if the king should step from his throne and say, here are two supplicants praying in opposition to one another, which shall be answered? Oh, I am sure, though it were agony, you would start from your feet and say, Jesus, not my will, but thine be done. You would give up your prayer for your loved one's life if you could realize the thoughts that Christ is praying in the opposite direction. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. Lord, thou shalt have them by faith, we will let them go. I understand the dynamic and the theological controversy about salvation of infants. I'm just saying the principle holds that if it's God's purpose for his people to be with him, that God's purpose being accomplished, even though it causes us pain and grief, is a good and, and wonderful thing. And to come to terms with that and to be at peace with that can be a difficult thing, but that's, I think, where he was at. And I think he was convinced that his child would be in heaven and that was a part of it. Bob? Yeah, I was going to say, there's two aspects Yeah. Because you could you could still have the belief that God is good and this infant is not in heaven with him. Yeah. But he seems to have both. And it I mean, similar to or along the same lines of what Spurgeon is saying, if we if we trust in what scripture says, we have to acknowledge that being in heaven is a reward much better than living here. Right. Absolutely. And that that's the main point that I'm getting at. On the subject of infants and salvation, there was something I read probably a month and a half ago that the pastor over at Cornerstone in Roseville wrote, just a little pamphlet that I thought was really good. If I remember, I'll bring it in and put it in the, um, the bookshelf if anybody wants to read it, so as long as you bring it back. <laughs> All right, um, a little bit later, but the primary object of the work of establishing the orphan house is that God would be magnified because the orphans under my care will be provided with all they need through prayer and faith. A little bit later, I wanted him, Brother Craig, to show me any hidden corruption of my heart or any other scriptural reason against engaging in it. So, context, he wants to establish the orphan house. He's not sure if it's what God would have him to do. One of, the, one of if not the primary reason he wants to do it, 
is because he sees people all around him who are having trouble trusting God to meet their needs and work in their lives. And he feels like if he can do this orphan house in a particular way, as an example of those people, God will use it to grow his faith in theirs. At the same time, he acknowledges that he's sinful and sometimes has wrong motives for doing things. So he asks his close friend and ministry partner, Brother Craig, to say, is there any bad motive that you observe about me in wanting to do this thing? So, my question is, was strengthening the faith of others a sufficient or good motive for the orphan work? I think potentially yes. I think we tend to say, well, it should be because he wants to help the orphans, right? And I think that's clearly part of it too, right? But it's interesting that he sees that as a primary motive, Bob. Well, in hindsight, that's what led to this book and yeah. this fame. Right. Yeah. In the orphanages, not in the scriptural institute. It was the orphanages that made him world famous, you know, made God world famous. Which is a fascinating thing, because sometimes we think that... He always wanted to be a missionary, right? So he saw his life's work as being a missionary. And eventually God made his life's work running these orphan houses and never being a missionary in a on-the-field, remote place, establishing churches kind of way, right? And so uh, there's something of the irony of what we think the purpose of our lives is and what God knows the purpose of our lives is can sometimes be two very different things, although not, not bad. Like either of them could be legitimate, but there's just a lot of interesting things going on there. Devin, you have something? Go ahead. Okay? Yeah, because an unbeliever is not going to be dependent on God, not going to be praying to God, not going to be thinking they need God to make it happen, right? Thus, in part, the willingness to go into debts and all these other sorts of approaches to things, just a different outlook on, very different outlook on approaching things. Last little thing here. There's a lady who's kind of a, a poor, either a widow or had never been married. I, I'm not going to look it up at the moment. Uh, she receives an inheritance, wants to donate it to the work. He says, before accepting the money, I had a long conversation with her. I needed to know her motives and whether she might have given this money emotionally without having counted the cost. Toward the end of her life, her body grew weaker and she was able to work very little, but the Lord supplied her with all she needed, although she never asked for anything. What's the connection between those two things? Why did he ask her, why is it helpful to pause before receiving a particularly generous gift? Millie? Good. Okay, someone might be trying to buy their way into heaven, okay? So if it's someone we're not sure if it's a believer or not, we should have that conversation and say, God can use your gift, but you don't gain better standing with him by being generous in this way, okay? Good. Sandra? Okay, yeah, so two different perspectives. What's the spiritual good of the person giving the gift? Are they a believer? Have they thought about their relationship with God in doing it? And then the person receiving the gift, is this person trusting in God or just saying, the first person that offers me lots of money, I'm just going to grab onto it because i got to have it to make this thing happen that I want to have happen, right? But I think that's what you're getting into, Sandra. Bob? Also, this was a specific case because he had received large donations before. Yeah. But because of her... 
she was always extremely simple. She never showed any, she never, he never, he said, I never knew that she had this kind of money or that she received an inheritance. So I think it was because of the individual that he decided to really examine her heart. Yeah. Um, why should we encourage someone to count the cost of generosity, particularly in light of the fact that she ran out of money at the end of her life? Okay. And yet, we don't get that sense maybe from that second quote. He says, the Lord provided her with all she needed. And we, so this is... Uh, Trying to think how to say this. I'll just say it this way. There's been generosity shown to my family over the course of Maggie and Kelly's illnesses that it would be tempting for me to say I need to stockpile anything that's come in for the future because what other bad thing might come up down the road or what could happen with the economy or will I have enough money down the road for retirement, all of these sorts of things. But the spirit of generosity that this lady shows shows that God is more than capable of providing even if we are generous in the here and now and don't set aside huge amounts for the future. Every person has to decide before God all of those things, right? I'm not saying what I do or what she does is what anybody else should do, right? What I am saying, though, is to the extent that there is a grasping, greedy spirit in our hearts that says, if I don't hold on God cannot take care of me. That's where I think we can learn from her example. Eric, you had something, and then Bob and Sandra. For, for her, it was a question of faith. For him, it was a question of her One quick comment on that, and then Bob, um, and then Sandra. Um, I think I agree generally with what you said. The only pushback I would have is the definition of provide is something that we would want to think through. Because there are people, for example, who say, my family needs, and then fills in with a whole long list of wants and extravagances. Those people, I think, need to be challenged to say, God's work comes before some of these dreams of a second and third house and an expensive vacation and a new car and a whatever else, lots of clothes. In the, in the case of where someone has very little comparatively, I think I would, I would be very careful about pushing that, of guilting that person to give generously. But then we have the example of what Paul talks about in Corinthians, the Macedonian believers out of their poverty give generously. Lots of things going into that, just something to think about, Bob. That in mind, considering the numbers, yeah, it would be like somebody today, based on the numbers that he gave, making twenty thousand dollars a year in Social Security, inheriting about eight hundred thousand dollars. 
and she paid off her dad's debt. She gave money to her mom, and she gave this money to the orphanage. And you know, she gave away half of it, at least, yeah. to do these other things. And it seems like she kept giving more and more as well. Right. So, I mean, thinking about that, most of us, if we made $25,000 a year and inherited 800000 we're getting a, a better house, we're putting some, we're investing it, you know, we're doing all these things. We're not, for, our first thing isn't normally, how many other things can I do to help God, or to support God's ministry? And maybe we give 10% or, you know. God's ministry and family and all that. Yeah, yeah, good. Sandra, and then Mary? I, yes, I don't know, and this goes back to the thing that we were discussing two weeks ago about the grace of faith and the gift of faith and all those sorts of things. I don't know that everybody is necessarily in a particular spot to be able to confidently do this sort of thing and not constantly have doubts and anxieties about having done it. So I think there's perhaps a degree of spiritual maturity and having seen God work in particular ways up to a particular point that enables someone to be able to do something like this. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, I, as far as an example of faith, absolutely we can learn from it. What we learn from it, I think, is a little bit more difficult to define because there's lots of things we could learn from it. Mary? Yeah. If Christ gave everything, how can we not give all? And this, again, comes back to something we've talked about a number of points in the past. When we have the attitude, this is mine, and I give God a little bit of mine, it's really easy for us to justify giving as little as possible. When we have the realization, this is God's, and He's loaned it to me, and how am I going to invest it for Him in the work He wants to see done in the world, it completely changes our perspective. Whether it's a million dollars or ten bucks that shows up unexpectedly, this is not mine, this is God's. How does God want me to spend it? Does God want me to spend it on an extravagant lifestyle and lots of luxuries and pleasures? Or does God want me to live more simply to the extent that whatever comes in, I am less burdened and attached and I have opportunity to serve and minister, right? And God puts all of us in different places. Sometimes we have a lot, sometimes we have a little, sometimes that lot or a little characterizes most of our lives. And uh, God, we just need grace and wisdom on how to you know, use that. All right, we're going to wrap up there. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for these godly examples that have come before us, that we can have much good discussion about what they did or did not do, and uh, learn from, and hopefully honor you in the decisions that we make as well. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>